And for many of us, that is welcome news. We are looking forward to a brand new start in the new year. We um, may have looked at 2020 as a year that has been marked with dread and loss. And 2021 is coming. And so with a new year brings new hope and uh, the opportunity to have uh, just a brand new fresh start. But I want to encourage you this morning, as you prepare to enter this new year, to not discount all of the work that God has done in this disastrous year of 2020. In the midst of all this turmoil, Jesus has reigned sovereignly on his throne, and 2020 did not catch him off guard. Simply, it has exposed to us our own need for Jesus. It has shown to us that all of our enterprises are ultimately frail. And so we cannot build an empire for ourselves. We must throw ourselves to Jesus' feet because his kingdom will last, his kingdom will come, and he will satisfy us. So even if 2021 is better than the year that we've experienced, or maybe it actually ends up being worse, you can rest assured that Jesus Christ is still on his throne. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 will be in verses 24 to 30. If you're new to reading the Bible, uh, Mark is the second book in the New Testament. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So you can flip over to Mark chapter 7 verses 24 to 30, uh, or you can follow along uh, on the screens in front of you. Mark 7, starting in verse 24. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. God, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, as we sit under the word, Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart that is uh, more uh, ready to receive the word rather than resist your word. Father, we pray that you would give us a desire to learn, to grow, to understand, not just so that we can fill our minds with a bunch of knowledge that will make us look impressive in our conversations with our friends, but Lord, that we would see our great need and that we would see that we need the crumbs of Christ. Father, help us to take your word, have it dwell in our hearts richly, and Lord, we ask that you would help us to abound in hope and thanksgiving as we meditate upon the scriptures. Lord, we pray that this blessing, uh, that this service would be a blessing to those in this room. Father, we pray for um, the churches in and around Washington County and all around the state of Maryland. Father, we pray for Virginia Avenue, Lord, that you would bless Pastor Jerry and the saints there. God, we ask that you would breathe life into uh, churches preaching the gospel today. Um, Let this Sunday not just be uh, the final Sunday of the year or an opportunity for Christians to take a day off, but Lord, let your people abound in praise and thanksgiving as we come to you, Lord Jesus. We pray that this would all glorify you and bring you great honor and praise. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Our episode this morning picks up with Jesus and his disciples going into the pagan district of Tyre, following the controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Mark, but as we spend time recapping the text here, my prayer and my hope is that you will see that Jesus has a very specific mission. So here in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 23, 
what we'll see is that pushing past long-recognized social, ethnic, and religious boundaries, a desperate mother comes before Jesus and pleads with him to save her daughter, who is severely afflicted by an unclean spirit. So, earlier on in chapter 7, we learned a couple of things from this controversy. We learned, number one, the Pharisees, whose own traditions and commandments had taken priority over the commandments of God, they had effectively rejected God's commandments. Number two, Jesus rejected both the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their flawed understanding of what defiled a person and made them unclean. When we encounter Jesus, many of us may actually grapple with the same thing that Jesus rejects the Pharisees for. We and our understanding of what makes a person unclean may be challenged when we see passages like this morning's passage with this Gentile woman. So, following chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, the question that we are going to grapple with today is, will Jesus reject an unclean woman and her young daughter with an unclean spirit? Will Jesus reject an unclean woman and her young daughter with an unclean spirit. So this section serves as a sequel to what we've uh, studied through in the first 23 verses of chapter 7, where the faith of this Syrophoenician woman dramatically contrasts with the determined and hardened unbelief of the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem. And Not only does the humble and desperate faith of this woman put the Pharisees to shame, But her witty reply to Jesus indicates that she even possesses a greater degree of understanding than that of even the disciples themselves. You can see that in chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. So the previous controversy with the Pharisees was typical of the kind of resistance that Jesus faced from the Jewish leaders. But in this section, we are shown that there is a surprising openness to Jesus among the Gentiles. The previous story revolved around Jewish men with the law. The present story concerns a non-Jewish woman without the law. The tradition of the elders presupposed that there could be no salvation apart from the law. But Mark's account, however, will show us that a pagan Gentile woman found in Jesus what the Jewish elders mistakenly taught could only be found in the Torahs, but more importantly, in their traditions. The main point of our text this morning is simply, Jesus Christ is the mercy of God and will make you clean by faith alone. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God and will make you clean by faith alone. So if you're a Christian in the room today, and I trust that most, if not all of you are, the thing that you need to take home today from this text is that Jesus Christ is the mercy of God and will make you clean by faith alone. And if you're not a Christian this morning, and let me just say we're glad that you're here with us today, stick around, we'd love to talk with you. If you've got questions about Christianity and what the gospel is, we are here to help you clarify uh, your understanding of who Jesus is. But here's what you need to take home today. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God and will make you clean by faith alone. So in our study this morning, we are going to examine six observations from this conversation between Jesus and an unlikely Gentile woman who demonstrates authentic faith. And in the end, we will see that by faith in Jesus, she finds relief for her desperate need. So our first observation, chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, in Gentile territory. So if you're taking notes, this is our first of six observations in Gentile territory. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So here we see Jesus entered this Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, And apparently, he wanted to keep a low profile and escape the crowd's notice. So, the important part here is that he is stepping outside of the boundaries of Israel, and he's stepping into pagan territory. To understand the significance of Jesus' presence here, we need to understand that he was not just going uh, to one side of town 
uh, where the people were basically just the same as they are back home, Jesus was literally camping out in enemy territory. And while he didn't want anyone to know of his presence here in Tyre and Sidon, hiding him was easier said than done. His fame had already extended outside of Israel without even stepping foot outside of Israel. Mark chapter 3, verse 8. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. His fame's already known where he's going to be making camp. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So here, way back in Mark chapter 3, we see that the fame of his ability and power to heal those who were sick and oppressed and, uh, and possessed by demons already preceded him. So practically speaking, Jesus' fame and reputation was just so great that hiding him was going to be next to impossible. Now, here's a question we've got to ask when we see this. Why would Jesus not want anyone to know of his presence here? So one would think that if he would just make himself known, he could teach with authority to more people, he could perform all kinds of miracles to show his great power, he could attract more followers, he would then go more and more viral in this Gentile region and really just expand the size of his platform. So this sounds like a really good way to increase your brand awareness, right? But that's not what Jesus wanted to do. He did not want anyone to know of his presence here. But why? Well, it's possible that the Lord was looking for a respite from the intense opposition he just experienced from the Pharisees in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Another possibility is that Jesus was looking to just get some physical rest. Preaching and teaching can be physically draining. A third possibility, as one commentator noted in reference to Mark 6, verse 16, is that Herod Antipas considered Jesus to be John the Baptist come back to life. So if we remember earlier on in our study of Mark's gospel, Herod Antipas was the one who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. So it's reasonable to speculate that maybe Jesus was seeking to avoid some sort of confrontation or some sort of threat that would have sent him to his death before it was time. Now, in any case, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile regions, so Jesus and the disciples moving into an area that most Jews would have considered uh, to be unclean regions is uh, bewildering. It's shocking. The Pharisees would have understood that if they didn't wash their hands appropriately, that, they, that the disciples were unclean, and now, not only are they unclean with their hands, they are unclean by going into an unclean region. Tyre Modern-day Lebanon was a Gentile region with a long history of antagonism and hostility towards Israel. But our passage this morning is not the first time that we see a Jewish man of God who helps a non-Jewish woman. 1 Kings 16 records for us that the wicked queen Jezebel was from Tyre and her father was a Sidonian king. She was married to the evil king of Israel, King Ahab, and together they led the people of Israel under their rule in the worship of Baal and persecuted the prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, in this very region that Jesus and the disciples are in now, the prophet Elijah brought a widow's son back to life. And this widow is then convinced of Elijah's religion because of the power of God that she saw at work in and through Elijah. So the woman that we meet in our passage today bears a striking resemblance to this scene in Israel's history. The people of Tyre and Sidon did not have a rosy history with the Israelites. The famous Jewish historian Josephus recounts that the inhabitants of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest enemies. These weren't just people that you disagreed with politically. Like maybe you had a couple of points that you disagreed with. They were our bitterest enemies. So when you consider their social climate and all of the historical tensions and the ethnic animosities between these groups, it is utterly scandalous that Jesus and his disciples would come to this place, a place that is known for such extreme expressions of paganism. The, the Messiah 
according to the Pharisees' understanding, was expected to expel and subdue the Gentiles, not to visit and embrace them. So in a redemptive perspective, Jesus' visiting of Tyre literally leveled the playing field in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion in a way that was entirely unprecedented. So with the new year just around the corner, many of us will likely have a renewed resolution to read the Bible in its entirety in 2021. Maybe that's the same resolution that we had in 2020 and then in 2019 and go on and you just keep going. But this year, we really want to finish reading the entire Bible. So here's a tip for you if you're looking to get more out of your regular Bible reading in the new year. Don't gloss over things like genealogies or geography because even the smallest details in the text can play a big role in what the Lord wants us to understand. Don't gloss over things like genealogies or geography. And if you're honest with yourself and with others around you, you might want to gloss over it because you might find that text to be a bit boring, a bit of a drag. But here's a freebie not in my manuscript. If you, play really co- if you pay really close attention to genealogies and geographies in the text, Matthew chapter 1, for example, you will see that in Jesus' genealogy, of the four women that are mentioned, three of them are Gentiles. And the fourth woman was married to a Gentile whose husband was murdered by King David. So the little tidbit there that there are four, that there are three Gentile women and, and one that was married to a Gentile man is going to show us both the heart of God and the mission of God. So Jesus entering Tyre This small little geographical tidbit shows us the heart of God and the mission of God. That Jesus came not just to his enemies, but that he came ultimately for his enemies. So understanding the heart and mission of God will help you to read the Bible better in the new year. So when you get to Matthew chapter 1 and you read that genealogy, you're going to see all these different characters. You're going to say, whoa, look at the heart and mission of God. Now, there's a very interesting observation that commentators have noted regarding Jesus' itineration here in, uh, among the Gentiles recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And that's that he does not teach. So in his itineration among the Gentiles, he does not teach. Thus far in our study of Mark's Gospel, there are 15 references to Jesus' teaching. And we see that the crowds respond with amazement. They are amazed at how Jesus taught as one with authority. Yet there are no references of Jesus' teaching in the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis. So his purpose in these Gentile regions, under a close examination of the text, seems to be more restricted than in the Jewish towns and villages, where he was openly teaching. But among the Gentiles, Jesus does mighty works of exorcism, Chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. We're going to see that work being done here in our passage today. Spoiler alert. He does works of healing in chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. He feeds the hungry in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. But he does not teach and evangelize to the Gentiles. It's a really interesting observation here. And as we'll see with Jesus' conversation with this Syrophoenician woman, his witness to the Jews would have to take priority over to his witness to the Gentiles. Salvation was to begin in Israel by Jesus' ministry, and the mission to the Gentiles would be carried on later by the apostles, meaning the ministry to us would be carried on later. Mark chapter 7 verses 24, all the way to Mark chapter 8, verse 9, reinforces the truth that Jesus revealed in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. And that's that in Christ, there is no longer unclean food, nor unclean people. So here we have Jesus with his disciples in enemy Gentile territory, with no place to hide, and while some rest would be appreciated, our Lord is interrupted by a desperate mother in need. And all the tired moms in the room shook their head, yes, they understand what it means to be interrupted. So, second observation, chapter 7, verse 26. A desperate, uh, a mother's desperate request. 
So verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now Matthew records in his account of this same episode in Matthew 15. So if you want to keep one finger on Mark 7, you can keep another finger on Matthew 15. And there he records in Matthew 15 verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So here we're given really important details about not just who this woman is, but the kind of woman that she is. She is a Gentile. She is ethnically Syrophoenician. She happens to be a desperate mother. Her posture and the way in which she addresses Jesus may be out of great respect for a famous teacher and miracle worker, but it's really interesting that in Matthew's account, she calls him by the title Son of David. She calls Jesus by his messianic title. And that's even more astounding considering the fact that she is not one of Israel's daughters. She is a pagan outsider. And in Matthew's account, she is additionally identified as a Canaanite. So if you're unfamiliar with Old Testament history, in Genesis 15, we are shown that God had been incredibly patient with the Canaanites and their wickedness. Canaanites were understood to be morally corrupt and unjust and grossly wicked. Texts like Leviticus 18, verses 24 and 25, then again in chapter 20, verses 22 to 24, describes for us their destructive sexual behavior, their gross injustice, and their harmful and wicked ritual worship, which was in the form of bodily mutilation, along with the widespread and abhorrent practice of child sacrifice. Canaanite culture was described as utterly corrupt, especially when it came to violence and abuse of the most vulnerable in their communities. The Canaanites also happened to dwell in the land that God promised to give to the Israelites after he freed the Israelites from bondage and captivity in Egypt. In an act of divine judgment, God would have the people of Israel drive the Canaanites out of the land under Joshua's command. So this is just some of the baggage that this woman carries and brings to the Lord. So, what kind of person approached Jesus? If you read verse 26, it reads like a crescendo. A Canaanite, a Gentile, an ethnic outsider, an unclean woman whose daughter is severely oppressed by an unclean spirit, and maybe most heart-wrenching here on her resume is that she is a desperate mother. She is desperate. If Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, this woman was a Gentile of Gentiles. And even Levi, formerly a tax collector who is now a repentant follower of Jesus, would likely have paused and maybe even raised an eyebrow as this woman just threw herself at Jesus' feet and was pleading that he cast the demon out of her little girl. The last time in Mark we see someone fall at the feet of Jesus is Jairus, the president of a Jewish synagogue. In comparison to this pagan woman, Jairus holds the kind of social qualifications that you would envy. He had position, he had status, he had influence, but this pagan woman, in comparison, has the most against her socially. And despite her notorious credentials, this woman did not approach Jesus with any facade or veneer. She handed Jesus her resume, which simply had desperate need stamped across it. The way that she approaches Christ is an example for how we ought to approach Christ. With honesty, with transparency, and with no facade. Commentator James Edwards notes that despite Jairus' enviable qualifications, however, he does not hold an advantage with Jesus. For the woman's deficit with regard to qualifications will be compensated for her by her depth of faith. For all their differences, both petitioners, a notable Jew and a lowly Gentile, both find fulfillment in Jesus. For Jesus sees not human status, but human need. He does not see human status, 
he sees human need. And for many of us this year, this year has been one where we have seen our own need, and maybe even the needs around us. This year has been full of various difficulties and disappointments, where we have been presented with all kinds of challenges that many of us were unprepared for, challenges that have required an extraordinary amount of godly wisdom to endure and navigate through. This year for you is perhaps marked by losses of various kinds, whether it's a job, your savings, perhaps you've had to say difficult goodbyes to loved ones. One dear friend summarized his year to me simply as one of grief. And, and, and maybe that's how you would describe your year. But, but as I shared with you earlier, as difficult as this year has been, church, we must not think that God took the year off or that he left us to fend for ourselves. 2020 has not been a Sabbath year for our great King and Savior. Even through all the various difficulties and challenges, he has not withdrawn his mercy on us. In his sovereign grace, love, power, and wisdom, God still gave us everything that we needed to walk with him, even in such an unprecedented year like 2020. And some of us need to chew on that this afternoon. When we sit during lunch, we need to think about the fact that God was still with us. He is still presently with us. John Piper uh, has famously said many things, uh, but one thing that he has said that has stuck with me for years is that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of only three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Now, some of you may be aware of four things. But whether we're the Jairuses of the world or we're the unnamed desperate mother, Jesus doesn't see our status. He only sees our need. Have you, friends, seen your need? Have you, with open hands, come to the Lord and placed your burdens before him, knowing that he cares for you? He cares for you. Think about that over lunch today. Pray and ask God to help you to see all the many ways in which he has cared for you and shown you mercy this year. If he shows you only one more thing that he has done to add to your list of three things that you're already aware of, you can bow down before our great king and say thank you. Now, while the Pharisees would appear to have all the right social credentials compared to this woman, it is very ironic that she possesses something that they never will. They worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And while her credentials may be wrong, the posture of her heart before the Lord was right. This woman was on a mission to scrape together some crumbs from the Lord. And being a Canaanite woman, she likely would have known that just a few miles away stood the temple to the pagan god of healing. But that is not where we find her. Nor do we find this woman scheming and devising how she can get what she wants from God, how she can use God for her own convenience. Rather, we find herself throwing herself at Jesus' feet, begging for mercy. This woman's self-awareness and understanding is astounding because unlike the Pharisees who presume upon God's grace and his kindness, she pleads that the Lord would have mercy on her. This woman was considered to be far off. She has a clearer understanding of the character of God than those who claim to know the Lord and are experts on the law. Friends, this is why when high-profile pastors and preachers and uh, ministry leaders fall in disgrace to various forms of immorality, it's, it's, it's especially heartbreaking because they should know. They do know. They've been preaching the text and they know the word. They've been teaching and discipling, but they fall to grievous sin. It is especially heartbreaking to see that. Now, Jesus' encounter with this woman, it flips our understanding. 
It is this woman who's far away who knows the character of God better than those who claim to be near but are actually far from the Lord. Her humility and her pleading for mercy is almost identical to the praying tax collector from Jesus' parable in Luke 18. You don't have to flip there, but you're definitely welcome to uh, meditate on Luke 18 later today. But here in Luke 18, whereas the Pharisees congratulated himself before the Lord that he was not like other men who were extortioners and unjust and adulterers or even this tax collector that was praying beside him, the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And at the end of that parable, Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The praying Pharisee, if you can call what he was doing, even praying, was blinded by his own pride, but the confessing tax collector had spiritual eyes to see. Eyes to see himself as in need of mercy and to see God as holy and merciful. Our natural tendency, though, may be that we desire to be seen as respectful. We want to be respected by others. We want to be seen as doing well, keeping up with the Joneses, that whole idea. But we, like this praying tax collector, we need spiritual eyes to see ourselves as those who are in need of the mercy of God and the love of God. This uh, pagan woman did not presume upon God's mercy. She did not consider herself to be entitled to God's favor. If you flip back to Matthew 15, 22, she says, have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Mercy on this desperate mom would mean deliverance for her little girl. And who would not flip the world upside down to care for their little one? Our third observation, verse 27, a peculiar response. Verse 27, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a peculiar response. Matthew 15, verse 23, we're given some additional details. Matthew records, But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying after us. So, here we are uh, with this woman pleading, and her desperate pleading is apparently met with silence. And many of us, we maybe have spoken to our spouse or maybe we're talking to our children and we're we're trying to get their attention and we're just met with silence. It can be incredibly awkward, right? He did not answer her a word. So here we're shown that she was also not the only person begging Jesus to do something for her. We're shown that the disciples were also begging Jesus to save them. That, uh, but this was not uh, a desire to be saved from a threat to their lives or any sort of real danger, but from this very woman who they think is pestering them. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. So in Mark 7 verse 18, we learned that the disciples lacked understanding when it came to Jesus' teaching about what truly defiled a person. And now, with this woman at Jesus' feet, we learn that the disciples apparently also lacked compassion. But what may be even more awkward is when Jesus finally responds to her, he responds with a parable, and in this parable, he appears to call her a dog. And he said to her, "Let let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So this is quite a peculiar response. If you look at this passage with just a cursory glance, you might be tempted to think that this is an incredibly awkward thing to say and maybe even an offensive way to, uh, for Jesus to respond to this woman. But if we pay careful attention to the text, we will find stores of grace in Jesus' words. 
So how are we to understand what's being said here? The late R.C. Sproul is helpful, and he said, in order to grasp how offensive this comment might have seemed, we need to understand that one of the worst insults one person could hurl at another in that region in antiquity was to call him or her a dog. In most cases at the time, dogs were not pleasant, companionable creatures such as we enjoy as house pets. Rather, they were half-wild scavengers. They would eat garbage and carrion. I had to look up what carrion meant. Uh, It is literally the decaying flesh of dead animals. This is disgusting. And they would, the dogs, would even devour corpses. They were the filthiest animals in the towns. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Using dogs as a euphemism for those who reject the gospel. Friends, if you have a friend who is rejecting your attempts to share the gospel with them, please do not end that conversation by calling them a dog. In the Old Testament, that this, uh, this expression for people, uh, th- this expression of dogs were for people who were judged worthless and dispensable. While the Jews would view themselves as children of God, the Gentiles would be regarded as ignorant, godless, and pagan idolaters. So if we were to just superficially read Jesus' response, this would seem like a very offensive thing and harsh thing to say, especially to a woman whose situation is just so heartbreaking. And you probably have friends who would read a passage like this and be ready to write Jesus off because they perceive that he was speaking harshly and insulting a perfectly innocent woman with such a derogatory term. Your friends may be very quick to just cancel Jesus. But as modern 21st century Westerners, whether it's your unbelieving friends or it's believing Christians, we must understand that even with all of our sophistication and modern sensibilities, we will never be in a position where we can rightly accuse the Lord of wrongdoing. We will never, ever, ever be in a position where we can say to the Lord, God, that was wrong of you to do. And in this passage, The only person in this story who is perfectly innocent is Jesus. The mom is not the hero of our story. And if you're new to reading the Bible, in addition to understanding that Jesus came for his enemies and he came to his enemies, you should understand that Jesus is the hero of every story in the scriptures. No matter how complicated the text might seem, no matter how awkward the story might seem, no matter how weird what's being said is being understood, Jesus is still the hero of the story. So is it right to believe that Jesus looked at this desperate woman to be like a miserable and disgusting dog? So physically, he's not looking at this woman at eye level. He's literally looking down at her. Is it right that Jesus looked at this desperate woman like a miserable and disgusting dog? And I cannot vehemently enough say, no. Jesus is not saying that she is a disgusting and miserable creature and with some sort of code word saying, get this disgusting woman out of my sight. The Greek word that Mark uses for dog is not the usual word that was used to mean for an unkempt street dog. The word instead is used in its diminutive form, meaning a small dog that could be kept in the house as a pet, a beloved pet dog who would be laying at his master's feet under the table. So think of Lady and the Tramp, where Lady would be laying on the floor restfully uh, by the fire while Jim Deere was reading the paper and Darling was knitting a blanket for their soon-to-come baby. This woman was viewed as lady. So we can assume also that the woman does not take offense at Jesus' words or see it used in the typical derogatory sense because when she replies to the Lord, she refers to herself and her daughter with the same term that Jesus uses. And she doesn't seem to be offended. So if she's not offended... We shouldn't be either. This non-committal response from Jesus is a parable. It is not an insult. This is a parable of a family meal where there are children and there are pet dogs. Pet dogs that will be fed, but not before the children are fed. 
there is an order, and the children get priority over the beloved pets. I had a friend who, uh, at work, where uh, I had been just praying that the Lord would give me opportunities to share the gospel with, and this is not an example of a successful uh, gospel proclamation story where, you know, I just really clearly shared the gospel and, you know, somehow they, they just were convinced of, wow, Chris is so right. He makes such a compelling argument. This is a really awkward moment of where uh, one should pay more attention to their thoughts before they speak. Uh, they were talking about two unbelieving friends, actually. They were talking about uh, their pets and how one was uh, the godmother to her dog, and, uh, to her neighbor's dog, and it was the self-proclaimed title. I didn't know that you could be a godmother to a neighbor's pet dog. Um, I thought godparents had to be legally assigned, and there were ceremonies involved, whatever else. Anyway, I uh, abruptly and very awkwardly responded when she said that she's the godmother to her neighbor's dog, quote, that's not a thing. (laughs) The words came out and I could not catch my tongue fast enough and shut my mouth. I told her that's not a thing and she was livid. Cheeks were rosy. You could just see the, the frustration. Her brow was furrowed. And then her friend tells me that, uh, that their pets carry equal weight and dignity as her children. And uh, our, our now four-year-old was not four, year, four years old then. She was a lot smaller. And uh, she was our only one then. And I laughed. I already knew that the awkward comment already went out. There's no saving myself. Might as well just enjoy the ride. I laugh and I say, absolutely not. Your pet dog does not carry the same value and dignity as your daughter, your own grown daughter. There's no way. She then asks me, Chris, you have a pet uh, cat at home, right? I said, no, my wife has a pet cat at home. (laughs) So she then uh, very kindly but firmly in a very motherly tone, tells me that apparently in Washington County, it's the law to have a fire escape plan. You have to know how to escape the house should there be um, a fire in the home. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know that. My plan is just grab the kid and get out as fast as you can. Um, and she said, no, every, every living thing in the house has to have an escape out of the house, including your pet. And I said, well, if, it's, if the choice is down to me saving my daughter in a burning home, And me saving the cat, goodbye, pigeon, I'm sorry. My daughter comes first. That was seen as utterly despicable of me, that I would prioritize my daughter before the pet cat. We uh, got Pigeon, my wife's cat, um, treats this year for Christmas, so please don't leave here thinking I'm heartless and cruel towards my wife's pet cat. But there's an order. There's an order in our home. There's an order in Jesus' ministry. The point of this parable is not that Gentiles are second-class citizens to the Jews or that they are God's plan B because the Jews are so obstinate to the Lord Jesus. The point is that Jesus' ministry on earth has a certain priority. Matthew's account adds more to Jesus' explanation because in Matthew 15, 24, he records for us that Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So here we see the sheep of Israel are the priority. One pastor said, there is an order to Jesus's mission. Salvation is to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. Jesus came to show Israel that he is the fulfillment of all that God promised to Israel. After his resurrection, Jesus will send his disciples to make disciples of all the nations. But not yet. Right now, the Gentiles have to wait their turn. Understanding this helps us to properly understand what Jesus says in verse 27. Let the children be fed first. Not only fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Paul echoes something very similar to what we're understanding from Jesus' response here, that the sheep of Israel are the priority. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, here's another thing that you can meditate on this afternoon. 
think about during lunch. Paul tells the uh, Gentile Ephesian readers in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 that they are to remember their hopeless situation before they were brought near to God by Jesus. He tells them to remember that at one time, you Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a desperately hopeless situation. And friends, this is a reminder in Ephesians 2 for us. Sometimes we look at Ephesians 2 verse 8 and we marvel at the fact that God has saved us by grace through faith alone and Christ alone for his glory alone. But then we kind of skim through the rest of the chapter. But here we are reminded, friends, that just like this woman at one time, we were separated from Christ. We were alien to God's people. We were strangers to God's promises. We, friends, were once hopeless, and we were once without God in the world. But God, being rich in mercy, some of the sweetest words that you'll read in the scriptures, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Us, Gentiles who were once far away, God in his love has made us alive with Christ by his grace and he has brought us near. He has brought us near. That brings us to our fourth observation. Verse 28, the mother's wit But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs. She comes before the Lord, and she is persistent. She is going to scrape something here, and she wants to find deliverance for her daughter. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In essence, she's saying here, Yes, Lord, you are right. And many of us need to do the exact same thing. We come before the Lord and we have a whole laundry list of stuff that we want and he hasn't seemed to have delivered. We need to see what this woman is doing and simply admit, and this may be the hardest thing we do, maybe all year, is just simply admit, yes, Lord, you are right. She says, I understand that I am an outsider. I have no claims on your mercy. I do not have a seat reserved at the table as the children do. I do not need the feast. I will be satisfied with your crumbs, Lord. That is all I am asking for. We are the dogs who wait for the crumbs, and one crumb for my daughter is all I am asking for. Her response is just simply stunning. Jesus responded, but didn't explicitly promise anything. But she did not walk away dejected because the Lord didn't immediately just deliver for her what she was hoping for. Many of us from time to time will face a need and we'll pray about it maybe once, maybe twice. Then we'll forget about it and then we'll be reminded a little later on and then we'll say, eh. and we just kind of go on, about, go on about our own thing. But if we don't see God deliver immediately, we feel disappointed. So we just give up. But not this desperate mom. This mother serves as an example for us. Again, in a very real way, this mother is a praying mother. J.C. Ryle in his commentary noted, quote, that she prays for one who could not pray for herself and never rests until her prayer is granted. By prayer, she obtains the cure which no human means could obtain. Through the prayer of the mother, the daughter is healed. On her own behalf, that daughter did not speak a word, but her mother spoke for her to the Lord and did not speak in vain. Hopeless and desperate as her case appeared, she had a praying mother. And where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. So, for all the moms in the room, for all all, all of you who uh, desire to be mothers, Pray. Pray for your children. 
pray for those around you who cannot speak to the Lord for themselves. Fathers and husbands, you must do the same. Do you see here the difference between this woman and the Pharisees? She is not fighting for her rights or her dignity. She is not assuming that the Lord owes her anything or that she is entitled to his favor. She's not concerned with her own position or her status or trying to maintain her control of her situation. She is not even concerned with the fact that the disciples are desperately begging that Jesus would send her away. This woman knows who she is and she knows that Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring her relief. In Psalm 22, verse 6, David says, I am a worm and no man. This isn't an example for us to be self-deprecating. And when someone asks us, how are you, friend? We just say, I'm a worm. (laughs) David shows to us his own posture before the Lord. I am a worm and no man, meaning he knew he was not entitled to God bestowing grace on him. And this woman, this pagan outsider, one who is not a daughter of Israel, she adopts the very same posture that David did before the Lord. The Pharisees knew that one would come in the line of David that would rule Israel and restore them. This woman approaches the son of David, with the very heart of David, understanding what grace is. Just one crumb, Lord, and I I will be full. That brings us to our fifth observation. Verse 29, mercy delivered. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So Matthew similarly records in Matthew 15, verse 28, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus sends this woman home, assuring her that the demon had already left and that her daughter was healed instantly. This Gentile woman, we are shown, is a true Israelite. Martin Luther commenting on this Uh, passage said she took Christ at his own words he then treated her not as a dog but as a child of Israel she placed herself unconditionally under Jesus's lordship and received his acknowledgement and his promise this woman submitted herself and her cause entirely to Jesus And while the Pharisees remained determined to be hardened in their unbelief and the disciples remained dull, this woman pushed past her pagan culture and their pagan gods to come to Jesus who is the true and living God. She persisted to plead even while the disciples were whining pathetically. She cast herself before the Lord knowing that Only in Jesus would she experience mercy and the quenching of her thirst. After all her suffering and begging for mercy, she would not be disappointed. While she was likely not personally familiar with the Jewish scriptures, she embodied the spirit of Psalm 55 verse 22. She cast her burden on the Lord and in his kindness and grace, the Lord showed this woman mercy. If there is just one book that I could recommend that you read in 2021 outside of the Bible and the Pilgrim's Progress, so there's a second book, whether you're a voracious reader or if reading is a chore for you, friends, pick up a copy of Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. If you're scrolling through Amazon right now, you're welcome to add that to your cart. Listen to Dane Ortland's words here. Not once are we told that God is, quote, provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think that divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. 
Divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. For fallen humans, we learn in the New Testament that this is reversed. We are to provoke one another to love, according to Hebrews 10.24. Yahweh needs no provoking to love, only to anger. We need no provoking to anger, only to love. Once again, the Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. Yahweh needs no provoking to love, only to anger. This woman came to a man who she believed possessed the ability and the power to heal her daughter when no one else and nothing else could. But who does she meet? She meets the living Lord who is rich in mercy. He's not quick to rebuke her. He is not insulting her. He is rich in mercy. Here's Ortland again. Nowhere else in the Bible is God described as rich in anything. The only thing that he is called rich in is mercy. What does this mean? It means that God is something other than what we naturally believe him to be. It means the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. In his justice, God is exacting. In his mercy, God is overflowing. You may look at your natural opponents, whether they're friends who reject your faith. You may look at those who are your political opponents, those who reject your political philosophy or ideology. You may look at those who are naturally opposed to something that you hold dear as a conviction, whether it's philosophical, ideological, theological, whatever it may be. But do you look at them as the Lord looks at them? Rich in mercy, where mercy is spring-loaded. This woman meets the living Lord who is rich in mercy. Many of us today need to shed our tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. We must believe in the true character of God, that he is rich in mercy, and his mercy is overflowing. The evidence of Christ's mercy towards you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his. Mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned eternally in your place. If God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on your way to heaven. The evidence of Christ's mercy towards you is not your life. It is his life. It is the cross that is God's evidence of his mercy towards you. Do you, friends, do you know the mercy of God? Are you burdened by the weight of your sin? Are you here spiritually weary, seeking rest, Do you, friends, mourn and long for comfort? Do you struggle against sin and desire victory? To all who sin and need a savior, come to the table. Come to Jesus and see that he is rich in mercy. Because Jesus healed the sick. Jesus fed the multitudes. Jesus gave legs to the crippled because Jesus gave a granted sight to the blind. Jesus opened the ears of the deaf. Jesus found prostitutes and tax collectors and drew them into the sphere of his love because Jesus loved the, uh, loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. He forgave the unforgivable. He welcomed the undesirable because Jesus even now saves the otherwise unsavable. Why? Because they deserve it? 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, not because we met him halfway, not because we took the proper steps forward and in good faith have elevated ourselves to the place of the deserving poor, but according to his mercy. Friends, we are here today because Jesus Christ did not say in cold indifference, give them what they deserve. They brought it on themselves. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And seeing us in our misery and need, he doesn't just feel for us. He takes the necessary action to relieve our distress. He leaves the eternal glory of heaven and the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. He condescends to us, lives among us, suffers like us, dies for us. This is the mercy of God. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God and will make you clean by faith alone. At the end of this back and forth with Jesus, this woman has yet to see that her daughter was healed. She doesn't leave this, uh, this conversation with a red receipt or with an invoice showing Jesus signed off on his healing of the girl. He simply says to her, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And that's good enough for her. She simply believes him and takes Jesus at his word, trusting that what he says is true because of who he is. So that brings us to our final observation, believing God. So verse 30, and she, and she went home and found, found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This mother first approached the Lord by faith and now she departs by faith. She likely rushed home with a confident and eager expectation that Jesus had restored her daughter once again and nothing more needed to be done. And the Lord didn't disappoint her. Finally, this demon is gone. She found her sweet girl laying in bed, resting and finally restored. This mother demonstrated, unlike the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that she possessed authentic faith. Whereas the Pharisees refuse to believe and the disciples seem unable to understand, it is this Canaanite, this Gentile, this ethnic outsider, this woman who was seen as being unclean, whose daughter had an unclean spirit, it is this woman who demonstrated that she possessed authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to have authentic faith in Jesus Christ? One of my favorite preachers commented on this and he said, what is authentic faith? The cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life and a, with a kind of spirituality attached to it? A holy hoping for the best? Is this how you think of faith? Friends, authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, and intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. This is what faith is. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. Taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost may be, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. 
It is an abiding assurance in God and his promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to him. Do you, friends, possess authentic faith? Faith to persevere. You need not look at yourself for the strength that you need for your weak faith today. You need simply to look at the mercy of God, Jesus Christ. This woman's story, in a way, is our story and should remind us that faith in Jesus Christ is saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him for salvation, trusting him to forgive our sins and guide us to eternal joy on the basis of his divine power and atoning death. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. If you believe this, if you believe Jesus is God's mercy for you, then come to the king's table where he will not leave you just with crumbs but will lavish grace upon you and satisfy you with himself, the very bread of life. Let's pray.